Okay, we are in the epistle of James, reading in chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 26. James 1.26, where we left off last time. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, This man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know, sometimes we've heard it said, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And there's certainly truth in that and we know what that what we're trying to say when, when, when that's said or what the person's trying to say, that, that it, is, it is more than merely a, a number of, of practices. It is a relationship with God. Nonetheless, here the word religious is used, and in this context, it's used as all the ceremonial things that are done throughout our faith. And there are things that we choose to do as a group of people, as families, and there are things that are good to do. For example, we come to church together as families as the kids are growing up. This is a good practice to get into. It is a good practice to hold on to these things because our children learn by this. There are values that are placed there when there's regularity in these sort of things. The Scripture doesn't say specifically that we have to read the Scriptures every day and meditate on them. It certainly encourages us to. But as we take this upon ourselves to do these practices, these are good things. But look what he says in 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, religious. So... Specifically, he doesn't say if anyone is religious. He says if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And this is said within the context of what we read last week, that if we look into a mirror and we don't deal with what we see, if we don't deal with what we see, it's as if we've just gone on and never covered anything. Never done anything to deal with what we see in the Word of God. So if we start thinking that we're really something, think about this. Do I bridle my tongue well? You know, it's, it, it's, it's really amazing if we sit back and think of the things that we say. Or if in this newer age that we live in, what we email to other people. Or the things that we might communicate in an email. And the harshness that can sometimes come out. And the Lord turns the whole thing right back on ourselves. And we have to say, whoa, am I really what I think I am? Am I really as spiritual as I think I am? Then he gets into this. And the beautiful thing about this book of James is again and again, he goes right into our face and he says, you think you're really something? Look at this. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. 
This is really what religion is. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. There was this class of people that was spoken about in the law of Moses, that they were never to oppress the orphan and the widow, that they were leave, to leave things for the orphan and, and, and for the widow. And specifically, this was addressed in a number of different passages, but if you're into recording passages in Exodus 22:22, it speaks of the orphan and the widow. The Jewish prophets spoke about this, spoke about taking care of the orphan and the widow. That was in Psalm 68, 5, and many other places. The Pharisees had failure, had failed in taking care of orphans and widows. And this is in Mark 12:40, and Jesus confronted them in this. And it was a key concern for the church in Acts chapter 6 and in 1 Timothy 5.3. Again, this watching out for the widows. In particular, it is this pure and undefiled religion is watching out for the vulnerable. Is showing particular concern for those who are vulnerable and not using our places of power to abuse those who are vulnerable. Let me give you some specifics. And what James does is you will see the examples that James gives. James hits with something and then he gives examples. Where there is vulnerability is, is as individuals rise up at work, for example, in the workplace, in their careers. They start getting more and more authority over other people. And there's people that become vulnerable now under our command, where in an instant we could terminate their career. We could terminate their work at that place. How do we treat people now that they have become vulnerable to us? This is really important. Sometimes you will see men abusing their position and taking advantage of women who are now vulnerable because of their place within the workplace. And God looks at that and looks at the man and says, be careful. This woman is now vulnerable because of where you are. God uses this example of the orphan and the widow, and Jesus used the very same sort of examples and equated this with true religion. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did the same sort of thing. Look in Matthew 25. And he equated this, in fact, with the judgment to, that is to come. In Matthew 25, it says in verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. <clears throat> so look at the picture here that Jesus Himself paints. And we have this, this thing about us, about, about judgment and everything, but I, I think everyone believes that God is still allowed to judge, right? God's still allowed to judge. People say, who do you think you are? You think you're God? So, we all concede that God is still in a position to judge. Jesus felt the same way about this, by the way. 
And it says that when he sits on his glorious throne in verse 31, he's going to separate the nations. Everybody in every nation is going to be separated. The sheep on one side and the goats on the other side. And here's the designator of what he uses. The same sort of thing that James was talking about. Jesus had already spoken about. Verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So Jesus is Entering, allowing them to enter into his kingdom. And his rationale for this is that you took care of others and that was as if you were taking care of me. You took care of others who were hungry. You took care of others who were, who were sick. You took care of others who were in prison. When you did this, you did it to me. In verse 41, and he will say to those on this left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now look at the judgment here. It's not just, well, you're not going to have as nice a place in heaven. You won't have as great a mansion. Look what the king, the one who everyone agrees on, is in a place to judge. Look what he says. He says, to those of you on the other side, depart from me, you are cursed. I'm going to put you, I'm going to designate for you to be in the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So those who rebelled against God, God prepared an eternal fire for them to dwell in. God says, that place that I prepared for them, I'm going to happen to put you to. Now this is pretty serious, isn't it? How much, more would, how much more vivid would we like Jesus to be? For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they, then they themselves said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look what Jesus does. Jesus equates reaching out to those who are vulnerable and in need with those who are going to enter into his kingdom. Jesus calls us to something. Remember what we read last time. Don't look in a mirror at your natural face and go, Oh, that's ugly, and then walk away and do nothing about it. 
This is exactly what James says. It's like the natural man who looks at his face in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he saw. If Jesus is speaking something to us, we're supposed to respond to this. And he says that when you do this to strangers, you do it to me. You say, well, I I don't know any strangers. Well, go out and meet some. Meet some people around you. You have a home, use it for him. God calls us to take of what we have and share it with others. He calls us to do this. We will all agree that that's a good thing to do. Oh, isn't that a good thing to do? It's good to share. Jesus likes sharing. But what he does is James puts this in our face. Don't be like a natural man who looks in a mirror and goes away and does nothing about this. You want to know what religion is? First of all, do you bridle your tongue? And if we really think about this, we go, go, I'm condemned. My tongue condemns me. What I email to others condemns me. What I say to others condemns me. It shows me that I'm not quite who I think I am. And then he says, you want to know what you're supposed to do? This is true and undefiled religion. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world. If someone has had a loss, someone has lost a loved one, for example, and you wonder, should I go and minister to them? Should I go and and talk with them and share with them and just spend some time with them? Should I call them? The answer to that thought is yes. If, If ever it crosses your mind, hey, I know this person is struggling, I'm wondering, should I call them? The answer to that question is, yes, you should. God has not allowed that to just race through your mind for the sake of racing it through your mind. The answer is, yes, He is calling us to something to be different. And Jesus Himself, the one who we would all concede is judge over all and allowed to judge, says, in that you do it to the least of these, you do it to Me. You ministered to me in my time of need when you ministered to this person in their time of need. When you did this, you did it to me. That is what he says. He says, this is true and undefiled religion. And then the other thing he says in James, he says in 127, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We are to be in this world, but we are in some way to be separate from this world. This is what true religion is. So we can have all these external practices and think we're really something, and James really gets to the heart of it. So the heart of it is this. Your tongue, what you do with those who are vulnerable, and how you keep yourself unstained by this world. That is the measure. And since we're going to look at this and probably look at this and say, I don't measure up, then it calls us to say, God, help me. Okay, let's move on. James chapter 2, reading from verse 1. My brethren, 
Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and, a dress in, and is dressed in fine clothes, and there is also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay atten- special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which we have been called? Okay, so... Look what he does. He calls us again to something different. He calls us again to be something different. Now he he gives us an example. So he says, don't hold the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now that is not to mean that we don't give honor in particular to special people. And it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Give honor to whom honor is due. And it's talking about authorities. So there's certain honor that we give to people because of their position. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, that there are people who are worthy of double honor. Who are they? Who are the people worthy of double honor? Elders. The Bible says that elders... And particularly, it says, those that labor in the word and doctrine. Those elders in the church that labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of double honor. So it is good to honor those people. What he's talking about is showing favoritism for a particular class of people. And what he does is he pulls out something in particular that the people were in that day showing favoritism in. And then he pulls it out and he puts it right in their face. James was again and again doing this. He will come with a concept and then he'll give us an example or else what will happen is we'll look at this concept and we'll go, oh, what a wonderful concept. Yes, people shouldn't do that. And then you go, oh, look at what I put right in your face. Here's what you do. And so what he accuses them of doing is that when somebody who was well-dressed with many rings on and, and, and that they would come and they'd move them right up to the front and then someone with ragged clothes on, they would put them in the back or they'd say, you sit here, not even on my footstool, but next to my footstool. Now we have ways of doing that too. We really do. You know, I went to this, it, it, it was a... a quite a famous church, but it was a, a, a young people's church, you know, where, where if you were over 35, you were in the older crowd. And so I went into this famous young people's church, and it was in Southern California, you know, where everything is hip. And I happened to be on a business trip, and so I was wearing my suit. And it was a Sunday, so I took a cab, and it was, it was like a 40 or $50 cab ride to get to this church on Sunday, but I wanted to visit this church because it was a famous church, but it was a young people's church. 
And when I went to this church, I was... So, so when I travel, I, I, I don't carry much in my bag because what my clothes I wear on my back. So I had my suit. So I went to church in this suit. And, so, and, and actually my meeting st- started later on that very same day. So I went to church in my suit and I was the only person in the church in a suit. And when I walked in there, all these eyes were looking at me like, who is this? You know, boy, he's dressed strangely. But it's okay, I I was dressed a little bit differently. And I went to the information desk, and this was a very large church, by the way. And and I went to the information desk and I said, you know, I took a cab ride here from this part of town. And do you know of anybody who after church is driving to that part of town that can drop me off? And they said to me at the information desk, I don't know anybody who lives over there. You're just going to have to ask around. Isn't this, you know, this famous church? And then I went into the church and nobody said anything to me. Not hello, how are you, how you doing? Nothing. And so I sat up, I think, like right up in the front, the second row. And the only time someone said hi is when the, the pastor stood up and he said, now greet somebody next to you. And I turned around and some guy shook my ha- hand. And that was it. After church, you know, I stood there, I thought I'd stand around, people are going to walk up and, you know, kind of greet me and say, hey, how you doing? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So this feeling that, oh, you know, we have these churches and people walk in and, you know, their pants are baggy and hanging halfway down and we don't talk to them because we're all buttoned up and everything. It works the other way, too. That people who who only wear pants, they're hanging halfway down their bottoms and everything. Don't talk to people in suits. It works the other way too. This is what James is saying. All of us are condemned in this. All of us are condemned. And I actually stood near the exit door thinking that somebody would come up and greet me. And that in that conversation, and I was praying, God, just bring somebody to bring me back to that part of town so I don't have to spend another 40 or $50 to take a cab back. Nobody stopped to talk to me. Even with all my prayers, God brings somebody from this church. It wasn't like I was hiding in the bathroom. I was standing by the exit door, waiting for somebody to come and talk to me. Nobody talked to me. So it doesn't matter where we are. We are condemned. We really are. We all have attitudes of personal favoritism. And then he says, he says that, that, in particular, this was a Jewish crowd. Remember, James said he was, writing, he was writing to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. So James was the pastor in Jerusalem. He's writing to Jews. This book was written to Jews. There were no Gentiles in the church yet. This is probably the, the first book of the New Testament that was written. There were no Gentiles that came in. That's why he never addresses the issue of Gentiles. And so he's writing to them, and Jews were showing attitudes of personal favoritism. And being a Jew, I know that that pattern remains today. You know, you look for the person who's dressed well, and you, you, know, you, you, you focus in upon them. Then he says this, he says, Did not God choose the poor of this world, in verse 5, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So not that all... Poor people are heirs of the kingdom. But percentage-wise, 
there's a lot more poor that are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So God has granted something special to the poor. You know, there is a group of people that would look upon the poor, and the Jews in this day did look upon the poor as accursed in some way, and that's why they're poor. But the Bible turns the whole thing, the whole thing around, and Jesus did that in the Sermon on the Mount. The same thing. And He said, God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. God gives them extra special ability to be rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. So the promise is not just to the poor, all the poor. It's to the poor among the poor, those who love Him. But He gives them something extra special. And you will find, the more money you make, the harder it is often to follow God. You say, well, how can that be? You, know, you, you don't have to worry about all this stuff. That worry, that strain, causes us to cry out to God and say, God, I don't know how I'm going to make this payment this week. That causes us to get closer to God. So to think that riches liberate us to serve God more, the Bible teaches just the opposite. God grants something special and in particular to the poor. And that they're heirs of the kingdom, which He promised to those who love Him. That the more you make, the easier it is to drift away. And not to God. This is what He's saying. And this, these Jews in particular that were dispersed abroad in the diaspora after Acts chapter 8, those who were dispersed were being brought before courts by rich Jews who are not believers. And he says to them, verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So what they were doing is they were dragging them before courts, before these Jewish courts, and blaspheme the name of Jesus. And he's saying, you're showing distinctions. And God loves the poor. You see what he does. Again and again, he calls us to show something special to the vulnerable. You will find in your midst, whenever you have a Bible study, whenever you have a church, whenever you have a youth group, whenever you have a campus group, you will find that there are people there that are a little bit different than everybody else. And sometimes they, they embarrass you. They bring troubles. They're... God has placed them there as the most vulnerable. And God wants them there, and you're to minister to them, and to love them, and to pour out to them. God does this. In every church, there are those who are vulnerable. There are those who you have to minister to in particular. That are a little bit of an embarrassment. When you have other visitors, you, these people are a bit different. But God allows them to be there because He calls us to something. He calls us to minister to them and to love them. God has placed them there, special and in particular, for us to make sure 
that we are going to honor them like we would honor anybody else. God has called us to something different. He says in verse 8 of of James chapter 2, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgression. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That would be a particularly good verse for you to memorize. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It says that if we are walking according to what it calls the royal law, there was the law of Moses, The Bible clearly says we have been freed from that law in the fulfillment of Jesus, but it puts us under a new law, the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, because that embodies what we have to do. And this same sort of thing, this same sort of law, was talked about by Jesus. Jesus mentioned this law in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. He said... In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The whole thing is embodied in this. You treat others the way you would want to be treated. The whole thing, this is how it's embodied. This is what James says. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the royal law. This is the royal law. He says, stop showing partiality. And he says, because if you're guilty in one aspect, you're guilty in all. God considered the entire Old Testament law. There were 613 commandments that were given through Moses. 613 commandments in the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments were only ten of the 613. We in the church have a way of segmenting these. We'll say, there are the Ten Commandments. We will say, well, what about the 612, the, 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 the other uh, 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 603? But then people will say, well, there's the ceremonial law, there's, there, there's these different classes of the law that we're no longer under. That's not true. The law was considered a body of law. It wasn't that the Ten Commandments, you violate one of those, you're in big trouble, you violate another one. It says you violate any one of them, you're in trouble. All of the Ten Commandments are embodied in New Testament commandments. Nine of the Ten, except the Sabbath day. Now, there is a Sabbath rest rest that is spoken of, but the Sabbath day 
being Saturday. And I know as Christians we say, well, Sunday is my Sabbath day. Never was supposed to be the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was always Saturday and continues to be. So if you want to put yourself under the law of the Sabbath day, it is Saturday. From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, to be specific. Nine of the ten commandments are embodied in New Testament commandments. Those are under the law of Jesus in the New Testament commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But this embodies the whole thing. The royal law is embodied in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, he says, you are doing well. You think of all the stuff that we've got to think about as Christians. James distills it down to this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing this, you're doing well. Now that is something I can, I can take hold of. You know, all these different laws, there's 150 commandments in the New Testament. So, okay, we don't have to worry about the 613 in the, in the Old Testament, but we've got 150. I mean, it's like every move I make. I'll tell you, when I grew up as a Jew, it was much easier in many ways as a secular Jew because I never worried much about sin. And all of a sudden I become a Christian and it's, everything I look at, I've got to worry about. Every thought, all of a sudden I've got to... Whoa! James puts it all into this verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you are doing well. You'll be fulfilling the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what I love about this guy, James. He would take it, and as soon as I start feeling good about myself, he says, oh really? What about your tongue? What about that sharp email you wrote? Oh, well, I, I guess I'm not quite as religious as I thought I was. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's something I can begin to get hold of. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I do this, I will be more merciful. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray for these young people in the name of Jesus, that you so work on their hearts to draw them close to yourself, that you cause them to have mercy and particularly upon those who are vulnerable. And as they rise up and move up into higher positions in life, Father, may they remember to show particular care for the vulnerable. Your mercies be there, I pray. Your mercies be there. Father, your mercy and your grace abound. Father, show them your mercies. Lord, may they walk in that and may they love their neighbors as they love themselves. Have mercy on us, Lord God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.